Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. My name is Peter Englert. I'm here with our faithful, consistent, fantastic producer, Nathan Yoder, and my favorite MSW, well, I can't say favorite podcast, MSW, because my wife's co-hosted. Ooh, yeah. So, can't take that. Anyways, <laughs> my second favorite MSW co-host podcast, Alyssa Matz. Alyssa, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm good with being the second favorite. That's understandable. That's the way it should be. <laughs> we are here with Kelly Flanagan. Kelly is an author and therapist uh, in the Midwest. He has a new book out called The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell. And the question that we're looking at with him is, why can I let go of my past? Alyssa, when I asked you to co-host with me. I was scared. You were scared. Yeah. Are I you- said, I don't want to talk about my past. <laughs> no, I thought it was going to be, I thought we were going to dig in, but we're not going to do that today. Um, but we're so excited to have you with us here today, Kelly. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about you, a little bit more about your story. Who is Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. It's great to meet you uh, and, and Peter to see you again. Um, who am I? <laughs> um, I am a, trained as a clinical psychologist. I went to Penn State for graduate school, uh, having grown up in Illinois met my wife in graduate school. Her name is also Kelly Flanagan now. Um, We also both have doctorates. So we are now both Dr. Kelly and Dr. Kelly. Um, So we get all sorts of treatment from TSA at the airport and we are easy to remember at parties and all of that. So um, we have three kids now. Uh, A 19 year old son who just moved out of the house um, is living in Chicago, supporting himself completely and trying to become a quote world famous stand-up comedian he's swinging for the fences uh which he has done since he came out of the womb and uh and we are thrilled that he's doing that and then we have a 15 year old son quinn and a 13 year old daughter caitlin um and honestly like i'm probably here sitting in front of you because of a letter i wrote to caitlin going on it was the end of 2013 beginning of 2014 um i was had started blogging at the time i had I'd sort of segued from blogging only about therapeutic topics, you know, as a, as a psychologist and had gotten more into just human topics and what it's like to be a human being and a husband and a father. And I, um, I wrote a letter to her from the makeup aisle of a target store, uh, called words from a father to his daughter from the makeup aisle. And it went insanely viral. And she and I wound up on the today show together in uh, February of 2014. And, uh, and I got connected with this great literary agent, uh, Philip Yancey's agent, actually. Uh, Philip happened to be, I mean, people say, how do I, so how do I become a published author? Well, you have Philip Yancey vacationing with your boss on the day you end up on the Today Show. And <laughs> he connects you with his agent. And so it's it's super easy, right? No, it's super lucky and, and, and fortunate. But um, anyway, so got connected with her. And she said, um, she said, hey you're writing these letters to your daughter, you know, you're probably ready to write a parenting book. Everybody loves these letters. And so I, um, I, I went home to my wife who is the, of the two Kelly's is the child psychologist. I'm the adult psychologist. And, and I said, Kathy thinks I should write a, you know, a book about parenting. And my wife is like, you had no business writing about parenting fella. And, uh, and she was right. Like she's had a front row seat, right. To the, to the train wreck of my parenting at that point. And, but it got us talking. It's like, okay, so if it's not the parenting element of these letters I'm writing to my daughter, what is it that is just appealing to me? I was getting millions of people through my website at the time, getting a hundred letters a day uh, via email. And so I started to go through those letters and I realized almost none of the letters were saying, 
hey, I'm going to take this letter and give it to my daughter, or I'm going to write a letter like this for my granddaughter. They all, adult men and women, they all said the same thing. I, I needed to hear these words. I needed to be reminded that I'm, that I'm worthy, that I'm lovable, that I'm not alone, that I matter, that I have a reason for being here. And it started to dawn on me, we all still have a little kid inside of us that's waiting on a love letter, right? That's needing to be reminded of our worthiness, that's needing to remember um, that we have uh, a purpose, um, that we belong, and that we're worthy. And so that became my book, Lovable. Um, but really, like, what, we're going on nine years ago now. Really, my life and my vocation has been wrestling with that reality ever since, right? That we have somehow our past still inside of us, still needing something. And what do we do with that reality? So here we are today. Um, that's how it got started. Wow. Thank you. That's awesome. You have a really cool mm -hmm. story. That's so unique. And we're here today to talk oh, about the you. question. Oh, sorry. We're here today to talk about the question, why can't I let go of my past? Um, and we know that you wrote this book, The Unhiding of Elisha Campbell. So, and that's more of a fiction book, right? That's right. Yeah, my first fictional book, my first novel. That's right. What inspired you to kind of change directions and go from writing nonfiction books to writing a fiction book? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, so I, I had a two book contract with InterVarsity Press and, uh, and the first book, True Companions, a relationship book was about to come out. And the contract said that before that one comes out, you have to pitch your second book of the, of the contract. This is probably going back to the summer of 2020. Talking to my agent, Kathy, again, she said, all right, we got to pitch the second book. Like, what do you, you know, what do you got plan again? <laughs> and I said, I don't, I don't really know what I have. I have the image of a bridge and in this bridge that we arrive at in the middle of our lives where we, the, the things that have gotten us this far cannot get us across the bridge. Like the things that have even brought us to success can't, will actually start to work against us. We have to cross this bridge to new ground, more graceful ground. This is like the, this is that moment in midlife where we, we're either going to have an awakening or we're going to have a crisis, a midlife crisis, right? And a midlife crisis is just doing the same old things and doubling down on them and expecting to get different results. And, and a midlife awakening is discovering new ways of seeing the world. Um, new things we value, deeper things we value, or spiritual things we value. So I said, I got this image and a bridge, and I, you know, and I, I've always wanted to write a book about the Beatitudes, and so I'm sort of imagining like the Beatitudes are like the eight ideas that actually walk us across that bridge to a more deeply spiritual sort of life. And um, and she said, uh, the instigator once again, she goes, well, what if they weren't ideas? What if they were actually people? And I was like, well, Kathy, it's a nonfiction book, so that's very strange. <laughs> um, and she said, well, why don't you sit with it, sit with it for a little while. And I did and uh, eventually thought, you know what, what if I, what if the book contained dialogues between me and a, a lost loved one of mine that I think exemplified each of the Beatitudes? And the book could sort of be that kind of dialogue. And, and what the reader would get to witness is watching me walk across that midlife bridge. Uh, to a, a more deeply uh, spiritual and meaningful sort of existence. And um, and so we pitched that idea as a nonfiction book to InterVarsity Press, and they came back very promptly and said, we think this would work better as a fictional book. And uh, and I'd always wanted to write fiction, and it's, uh, it, naturally it scared the heck out of me. And, uh, and I said, no, I'm going to propose a second nonfiction book. You don't understand. 
And they said the same thing. This would work better as fiction. And so I started to surrender to the the scary but exhilarating task of, of writing my first novel. And uh, and I'm sort of hooked. My second one is written and already in, in IDP's hands. And uh, I've started my third one. So um, I've, I've uh, discovered a deeper level of my passion that I knew existed. Kelly, I, I really appreciate that. And I think for our listeners who are about to read Unhiding Elijah Campbell and you know, we're thankful for Krista Clayton who gives us a nice little discount. So we'll be sharing about that on social media to buy the book. But I, I guess what, what I'm trying to kind of figure out with this character is, you know, you're talking about midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. We're in this season where people are talking about faith, doubt, skepticism, the modern mm-hmm. version of deconstruction. We don't have time to uh, kind of define the <laughs> classic version. And you know, I guess kind of give give our listeners a glimpse because this question of what do I have to or why why can't I let go of my past really resonates with Elijah Campbell. It resonates with your viral work, mm-hmm. and it resonate. And so, you know, bring our listener into kind of your thought process in mind of of when your past just isn't working for you anymore. Mm. Well, so it's hard for me to have any conversation like this without talking about what I see as sort of the three fundamental sort of components of the human experience. Um, And the first component is what I call, sometimes it's called the true self or our soul. It's the self that God created when he sent us into the world, created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in our mother's womb. That's the first reality about human beings. The second reality is that at some point we begin to encounter pain. We begin to encounter the message, the shameful message that we are not worthy of love and belonging the way that we were made. And, and, and so then the third thing happens, and this happens really young for a lot of us uh, before we're sort of even aware of what's going on. We essentially think without realizing it, well, Hey, if who I am, isn't good enough to be loved and to belong this thing that I so deeply desire, then I'm going to have to build a self that will go out there and get me love and belonging, protect me from all this pain that I'm feeling in, in, in life. And so we begin to build a false self or what we sometimes call an ego. And, and so, um, what we discover, I often say like, um, childhood is the experience of picking up pain and adulthood is the experience of trying to protect from having any more pain. Um, and, and when we are rooting our existence in protecting from new pain, Um, what we've got is we've got a part of us that is in pain already inside of us. Our true self, right. Is already carrying around pain, but we're outwardly focused, trying to earn love and belonging and trying to prevent more pain. And we never really deal with that little one inside of us that is still in pain and needing a little bit of attention. Um, and so what we discover is that, 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 that younger version of us that is wounded sort of starts to show up and push its way into, it, it will eventually insist on, on our attention and we have to go to more and more extreme lengths to not pay attention to it. And this is what you see in, in the unhiding of Elijah Campbell is this is a guy who at the beginning of the book would probably tell you, yeah, you know, my, my childhood, my family life wasn't ideal, but, but it's okay. I'm married to a great woman now and I've got this great daughter and I've got a writing career and all's going really well. Um, and the reality is that since his childhood, he's been coping with the pain of his childhood by by hiding that pain away um, from himself, even, um, but also from his people. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to earn their love by giving them everything that they want and pleasing them and keeping them happy. 
Um, and at some point that, that system, that process begins to fail and he has to start to face some of the ways that he's hiding from his own past and his own reality and from his people and even from his, himself. So, um, that's sort of what the story becomes is this unfolding awareness that, Oh, I do this. I've got these ways I've coped with my pain. And if I continue to, to cope in this way, I'm going to drive everybody away. So how do I awaken to that pain, heal it and begin to invite people back in? So Alyssa might not go in this direction, so I'll just kind of go there. So um, whenever we <laughs> okay. have, whenever we have therapists, it's kind of like free therapy just for a couple thousand listeners to listen to. So if, <laughs> if I hear what you're saying, um, you know, in kind of some of the work that I've done, probably kind of the moment I knew, like, so the moment that I go back to of where does, where does little, little Peter come back? So I'm in kindergarten <laughs> right? and um, I used to have this like real big curly hair and like growing mm. up before kindergarten, I was like every, every mom, aunt, you know, just everybody was like, your hair is awesome. And um, oh, then I go into kindergarten and, uh, you know, first day someone says, hey, you're curly fries. And like, mm. you laugh about it now, but like this, like when I go to my deepest sense of insecurity and pain, it's mm -hmm. to this little six-year-old that in kindergarten mm. at Ross Corners Christian Academy in Vestal, New York, you know, felt like, and right. you know, when I'm, you know, I'm an Enneagram too, we don't have to kind of talk about that, but there's this sense mm -hmm. of like going back to that moment and my reaction has been, I will just achieve, I will make more happen, I'll serve more, I'll that's be right. there for people. And like in my worst of worst moments, that's where I come back to. It, um, mm -hmm. I, I went there just to kind of hopefully illustrate, or you can kind of push back and say, no, that's not what I'm talking about, or I don't know. I think you're right on, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right on, and, and I, um, uh, one of the ways that that strikes me as particularly uh, true is that we usually see that the pain starts to happen sometime between about four to eight years old. Now, some of us go through particularly traumatic childhoods and that pain starts even earlier, but even in like a, like a normal, like, you know, everything's going great, you know, relatively affluent suburban upbringing, you, you start to pick up some pain and hurt between the ages of four to eight usually. Um, and so there you are, right in the middle of that range, right? Six years old. Um, and, and I think that what, when, when people hear this, they, they often, the reaction is, well, I don't remember anything like that. Um, or I have to find my one thing and sort of root it out and, and, and get rid of it, you know, like work through it and be done with it then. Cause I don't want to be carrying that around. And, and, and a lot of times it's one thing, but a lot of times it's just a, it's like a death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's just a lot of little things. It's, it's, you know, I mean, at its most basic level, it's every time you didn't feel seen or understood. I mean that like right there, sort of the pain of that kind of loneliness. Right. And that happens to all of us all the time. Um, and, and what the, what the young person does is I feel unseen and I feel misunderstood. I wonder why, well, I must not be good enough to see. Mm -hmm. I must not, I must not be normal enough. To, to be understood. Um, so I need to start to bury my uniqueness away, or I need to start to show up in certain ways to get attention, more positive attention. I mean, 
there's just all these subtle ways that that starts to happen in that in that age range. And then of course we have our like you, you had your you had the curly hair, you know. Um, when you to be completely candid, when you shared that story, um, I thought of must have been seventh grade, um, and by then I had all sorts of pain. But this this one stands out, and and I often tell people like when you start to like open up awareness to this subject and some memories come back to you that you're like, huh, I wonder why that came back to me. It's just cause it's important. It may not necessarily be something you can comprehend. It just means it matters. So like sort of slow down around it and stay there and, and give it the time and attention it deserves. But anyways, when you're talking the memory that came out, I'm walking through the cafeteria in seventh grade, I'm overweight and some kid, I don't know who it was, um, says, and I'll try to sanitize it because it is a seventh grade cafeteria here. So I'll try to try to sanitize it for a call. Um, hey, hey, Flanagan, you've got a bigger chest than my mom. Mm. Um, in front of all the boys and girls, right? In front of all the friends, and um, and I just, I just remember this 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 falling and shrinking inside of myself that happened in that moment that disappearing inward that going inward of like i i can't be on the outside here i gotta just be in here where it's safe you know and i think that's the experience that a lot of us have it's one of the first you know one of the most sub, sort of common subjective experiences of shame is the urge to hide ourselves i'll often tell folks that like People say, I don't think I have any shame. Like, well, just tell me all the places in your life where you feel an urge to hide yourself. And we'll, we'll, we'll get onto that shame pretty quickly, you know? Um, and, and so that urge to hide in that cafeteria stands out as a, as one of those, just part of the pain for me, just part of the story, you know? So I appreciate you sharing yours, Peter. Thank you. And I appreciate you sharing yours. I, I guess I'm curious. Um, do you think, you encounter more people that over-focus on their past or under-focus, or is it 50-50? Mm. That is a really good question. Um, mm. So, my answer to that question is there are, there are different ways to focus on our past. Right. Um, and in one of the ways to focus on our past is to say, I know what I know about my past and I hold a grudge and I wish people would pay a price for it. And, and it's this, there's no expanding of awareness around my story. There's, this is the story and this is my pain. And I'm sort of caught in it. The story isn't evolving or growing or, deepening or becoming more nuanced the thing that you start to get to see play out which i think is real spiritual growth in the unhiding of elijah campbell is that um if we're going to focus on our path it, it, it ought to always be in the service of, of expanding our awareness about that past deepening mm -hmm. our understanding of how that story affected us and then bringing whatever we brought into the realm of our awareness bringing it further into the boundaries of our compassion, both for ourselves and for the people who are a part of that story. Um, so there's a deepening awareness, a deepening compassion for everyone involved. Um, and hopefully then this movement into vulnerability about it, to be able to discuss and share it in a way that is, 
is not stuck and is not angry, but is redemptive. And, uh, and, and I hope that that's what we see in the unhiding of Elijah Campbell. We sort of like, it's a story that feels so real. It sort of sweeps us through that trajectory of, mm. of working through our past in a healthy way. Mm. Something I know about a lot of people about like why they don't want to talk about the past, bring up the past, work through the past is because they feel shameful about their past. There's something there that's difficult um, that they don't want to share or that is shameful for them. Why is that shame so right. hard for some people to, to face? Mm. So I would actually, I think, and I appreciate how you just sort of put your finger right on it. I mean, I think and the experience of shame is the number one reason that we don't, don't mm. deal with our past. Um, it's often helpful to, especially when we're talking in religious communities to distinguish between shame and guilt um, because, because you'll often hear it spoken to enough churches to hear the reaction. Well, isn't our shame good? Don't we have shame for a reason? Like, isn't it keep us, you know, uh, inside certain fences. And so we talk about the difference between shame and, and, and guilt and guilt is the, the feeling that we've done something wrong. It is actually a holy emotion. It's built into our DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the feeling I've done something wrong. So I need to go out and fix it. I need to go out and repair it. I need to apologize. I need to forgive. I need to reconcile. Something something was done wrong here. It's a very activating emotion, guilt is. It actually inspires us to action, to redemptive action. Whereas shame is the message that you are something wrong, that there's something fundamentally wrong and unlovable, un- unlovable about you at your core, and it's not fixable because it's just part of who you are, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so if there's something unlovable about me at my core that I can't fix, the, the best solution is actually to hide it, right? That's That actually makes a lot of sense. Um, and so it's not activating, it's deactivating. It actually shuts us down. It sends us into hiding. The irony being that shame feeds on hiding. So the more it's hidden, the stronger it gets. And then we start to feel ashamed about hiding. <laughs> and so now we hide even more. And so we feel more ashamed about our hiding. And the... The one of the most powerful truths is that as soon as you speak your shame out loud in a safe space, it diminishes mm. and it gets easier to tell even more of your story and share even more of your truth. Not in every space, because some reactions will be shameful reactions that actually multiply your shame, but in the right space, in a safe space, in a compassionate space, to be able to speak that out loud and say it actually starts to rob that shame of its power. And you can begin to have sort of a an exponentially healing effect in that way. Mm. You know, you, you know, the, the story of Elijah Campbell is, you know, you've kind of titled it midlife. And, um, you know, I, I just, because I'm thinking about this theme of past and I, I think about the conversation about deconstruction and, um, you know, I'm 36 years old. Um, I'm kind of inching my way closely to whatever midlife is. And, I know that a lot of my friends are like deconstructing their faith and it's just when you said midlife like there was just some like lights that Mm. went on in my head that I'm just kind of I'm kind of wondering if there's something about um, the millennial generation that Mm. there wasn't necessarily there we had enough psychology kind of 
mm. ideas of shame and guilt to be dangerous, but we didn't have enough to process healthily. <laughs> and um, right. and Alyssa, I, I'm so sorry. Are you are you a millennial or a Gen Z? I'm technically Gen Z. So Gen Z. Okay. okay. <laughs> but so, I don't relate with Gen Z. I, I think I think of them as so young. I'm 99. I was born in 99. Well, there you go. Now everybody yeah, knows. The, the, this, the, right. The age spread of a generation isn't fair. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, so anyways, to kind of come back to our question, like, and knowing Elijah's story, is deconstruction the new midlife crisis? Is it, I've been going through my whole life kind of taking all these answers. I didn't feel like I could really challenge it. Now I'm free to do it and here. I, I mean, mm. I don't know. I just, you have me asking that question. It's mm. a great question. And you know, probably the, the phrase midlife could, could stand for a little bit of defining too. like <laughs> sort of humbling. I turned 46 this year and my dad texted me and he said, Hey, your grandmother lived in 92. So you're truly in midlife now. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that's, I'm probably not going to live to 92, which means I'm beyond midlife. But, um, but when I say midlife, what I mean um, is that moment where you've actually gotten most of what you thought was going to make it all okay, and it doesn't make it all okay. Mm-hmm. And that can happen, you know, you some precocious folks who they, they check all the boxes by 29, and that's when they have their midlife moment, like, oh... I was supposed to be happy when I checked all those boxes. I got the wife. She's really pretty great. I've got the kids. They're all doing fine. I got the, you know, the job and the, the bank accounts where I want it now. And I mean, just go down it. I'm doing something that I have always wanted to do. And, and so midlife, that midlife moment is that moment where you go, Oh, the boxes aren't going to do it. All the, all the boxes I was told to check. Um, and I do think that that, like, I think that, um, rightly triggers um, reflection, questioning, and deconstruction, um, I think, no, I think of, I think of, um, I think of what Richard Rohr talks about when he says order, disorder, and reorder. I think the reality is like the, the deconstruction without the, the eye towards reconstruction, right? Mm. This, well, I guess there's no point. I guess there's no point. I guess, the 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 God that got me this far, I guess there is no God if that God didn't make me happy. Well, <laughs> um, I'm not so sure. Um, I think there might be a different God to begin to get to know at that point. And that's one of the messages of, of the hiding of Elijah Campbell. I think there's there's a line in there where Father Lou says, um, if God seems silent, it might not be because God is absent, but because he's waiting to have a, a better conversation, a more honest conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I think in that moment where we're feeling the urge to deconstruct because what we thought was going to do it for us, isn't doing it. We, we can go through that process, but with an eye toward reconstruction as well. Mm-hmm. This is good. I want to ask you a question from the perspective of someone who's not midlife yet. I mean, I'm 23, yeah. almost 24. Um, I have mm-hmm. not accomplished things that I want to accomplish yet. Yep. So I wouldn't say I'm at that midlife point um, age-wise or accomplishment-wise. Um, so I'm not at the point yet where I'm facing my past, where I'm looking back, where that inner child's coming out. 
sure. what advice would you give to listeners like me or to me myself um, as I'm growing and learning and getting older um, mm. about um, just processing my past in a healthy way um, while I'm still young and while I'm still growing and maturing before mm. I get to that midlife point? Mm. That's a fan- that's such a great question. Um, and, you know, I think... I think the temptation is to go, oh, well, if I'm eventually going to get to this point where I realize all of that success and stuff that I was chasing isn't going to do it for me, how can I, how can I come to that awareness faster and get to my midlife moment faster? And, um, and I have yet to meet the person, you know, like who doesn't have to just go through it. Um, who, you know, like, my, my encouragement is keep doing what you're doing. Like, you know, keep building what you're building, keep pursuing what you're pursuing, keep, keep going for it, but then just sort of keep an ear out for that voice inside that goes, Hmm, I'm seeing the horizon. I'm getting closer and closer to that moment where I thought that this was going to do it for me. And instead it's not. And this is a moment to slow down and start to reflect on, um, on what, what's going to come next for me. So, um, I just, I was, um, you know, I got a 19 year old, right. I'd love to save him. Um, what I'd love to save him is not that, that approaching that midlife moment. I want to save him that space that so many of us spend around it, sort of spinning our wheels, um, going, what's going on here. Maybe if I do more of the same, it'll get me through this. Um, and I, I, I just had a conversation with him. Like this was probably midsummer cause I can picture where I was driving and I just, I was in the car and I just screamed, stop it, Kelly. He's got to learn it for himself. He's not going to listen to you. Like we all have to go through it. Like it's, it's, there's this like insistence in each human heart on learning this pattern for ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that would be my encouragement is, um, is enjoy the pursuit, enjoy the growing, enjoy the expansion. Um, And then when it, it it quits being something enjoyable, start to notice that and pay attention. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I just want to add one thing. Uh, you can add this, um, but mm-hmm. my my major regret, and it's not just because my wife's in this profession and you're in this profession, I didn't start therapy till I was 28. If I would have handled right. a lot of the midlife stuff differently if I was kind of aware of this. And I... I think even kind of going back to our question, Mm. you know, the one thing that is just kind of keeps coming up that you're kind of bringing up, and this is why being in therapy is important. Having a small group of Mm. trusted, safe people that you can talk with, being a part of a church community, because it just the way that God speaks through people. And I think in that, so those are kind of the outward things, but the internal things are there's, there's a couple memories or there's a couple seasons. Like you, you said it could be a moment or so. Mm. And if I could go back to my twenties and redo that, I would have just started Mm. cataloging all of those moments. And I probably would have processed Mm. that with a therapist because not that it would have changed any of the circumstances. I just think I would have handled them different. I don't know. I'll just throw, as I was listening to you and Alyssa talk, that's like, if I could go back from, 23 to 28 that's what i probably would have done differently mm, I, I think that's fantastic advice and anybody who's listening who wants to take you up on it should totally do it i know for me what it took 
for me, it was, I mean, I'm a therapist and I really resisted any significant therapeutic work until I was like, what year would that have been? I was probably like 33 and, and it was starting to watch my boys get to the age where I actually had memories of being a boy and, and, and starting to kind of relate through their eyes to like, Ooh, I, I, I treat them this way because I don't want them to be treated the way I was. Oh, <laughs> I have pain around that at age six or seven that I didn't, wasn't aware of, but I'm parenting my boys to try to help them avoid that pain. Mm. Um, and so like for me, it was the instigator was starting to be able to revisit my own childhood through the eyes of my kids. And I, I think oftentimes that's why you start to see like a, like if you could pick an age where people start to return to therapy, it's in that, those, that the thirties when they start to have their own children and start to re- see some stuff coming out through those relationships. But if you can do it sooner, paying attention to them, like listening to your life, as Frederick Buechner says, important moments that are stirring something in you and you can actually go process that with a counselor or a small group, that would be, that's amazing. Yeah. So, um, it, it's, uh, I have a friend, Joyce, who's a therapist and she always makes a joke. She's like, you know, I want to stay in my lane and pastors, you need to kind of stay in your lane. So I am going to mix lanes here because, (laughs) because like, so in the Bible, like a lot of the most quoted scriptures on our past are about sin. So, you know, your sins are forgiven and they're forgotten from the East is from the West. And, you know, we can, I can kind of talk about some of the theological stuff, but I I guess what I kind of wonder from a, a therapy vantage point because we do have things that we feel guilty about. We do have things that we feel shameful about. And then we have like Christianity, which on one hand is your sins are forgiven. And like, it's as if you're supposed to magically forget because God forgets. And so I, I guess what I'm wondering is when you're helping people deal with their past, um, you know, not to steal the punchline, like we actually have to remember it and process through it. And I think there's room in the Bible for that, but how do you help people who kind of might have maybe just a a shift or they're two degrees off from really understanding the gospel to apply it to the past in their life? Mm. Mm. You know, the, the first thing that came to mind when you said that, like the clearest, um, encouragement in the gospel to acknowledge that the past is going to keep coming up and we'll have to deal with it over and over again is, is, uh, Jesus encouragement to forgive 70 times seven. Mm. And I think it's really easy for us to go, well, he means 490 different people (laughs) or different situations. But I tend to think of it as he's talking about having to forgive the same pain, the same situation over and over and over again, because that pain keeps coming up over and over and over again. And we have to, we have to acknowledge it when it does and forgive it all over again. Um, this is the way that I, I, I talk about it with my clients and I think about it personally. Um, if there, if, if there's this, if there's this true self inside of us, um, that was wounded, this little kid and, and a big part of the wound was all the various forms of you're not enough you know, you're not getting the attention, the care, the love that you deserve. Then when our pain from our past rises up within us and we say to it, wait, you shouldn't be feeling pain. Like 
that was years ago. What's wrong with you? You're supposed to have forgotten that. Your sins are forgiven. Let it go. Then we're actually reenacting the very wound that caused the pain in the first place. We're actually telling that younger part of us, stop it. You're being a troublemaker. You should have let this go by now. What's wrong with you? We're shaming ourselves for having pain again. Um, and so in that moment, if we can actually create space to go, oh, I have this part of me inside of me and I want to actually acknowledge it and honor it and figure out how I can care for it in this moment. I had a pastor reach out to me um, right after reading Lovable. He said, Kelly, your book made me think of something that happened last year. I got up on the pulpit to preach and I looked out in the congregation and the district superintendent was out there and he hadn't told me he was coming. So I knew it was sort of a, an evaluative thing. And I thought maybe disciplinary. I didn't know what was going on. So I started to panic. I'm sitting up there on the pulpit bar to get up and preach. I start to panic. And he said, and I, but I had the wherewithal to stop myself and say, why am I panicking? Like, I'm, this is a good sermon I've got prepared. Like and he said, and I realized it was the little boy in me who was terrified about getting up in a room in front of a room full of adults and, and, and delivering a sermon. And he said, and so right there in the pulpit, I, I, I spoke, I dialogued with my past. I dialogued with this little boy inside of me and I said, um, Hey dude, I get it. A lot of people out there, scary, but I want you to know I've given a lot of sermons. I'm really good at this. I've got this covered. You know, you don't have to worry about it, but you are the most fun, the most spontaneous, the most playful parts of me. Would you, would you be willing to get up there and, and give the sermon with me? And he said instantly he felt sort of like a peace come over him, peace in the sense of shalom, a wholeness, right? That he, this adult version of him and the younger version, were going to get up and give this sermon together, not forced, but collaboratively. And he said it was the best best sermon he'd ever given. Um, and, and so I think we want to, the tendency is to want to put our past behind us. Um, but we really, if we're focused on letting go of our past, we miss out on the opportunity to dialogue with it and, and welcome it back into the present and experience the peace and the shalom and the wholeness that goes with being one full creature, all, all the versions of us present and accounted for. So let me, I, I think that that's a nuance to our listeners because I, I'm wondering, our listeners probably had some assumptions coming into this that I think that you debunked it in a very good way. So I, what I don't hear you say is because sometimes we get, <clears throat> I'm just going to throw out the word self-help. Like we get self-help. Um, mm -hmm. I'm thinking of, this is really going to age myself. I think it's Stuart Smiley from Saturday Night Live who looks in the mirror <laughs> right, and he's right. like, you know, people, right. you know, you're good, you're handsome and smart and gosh darn it, people like you. Like, yeah you're not kind mm -hmm. of advocating for that you're advocating hey you're imperfect mm -hmm. and there's some imperfect and even sinful parts of you but then there's some things that happened to you that just you know you didn't get chosen mm -hmm. to get made fun of in seventh grade i didn't get chosen to get made fun of in kindergarten so even that last story you know for our listeners it it's almost as if you're kind of saying mm -hmm. this is where you can invite jesus into that moment so let me just kind of try to practice mm. on you and kind of, so I'm talking to six-year-old yeah. Peter. Hey, every part of you wants to go punch those kids. Every part of you wants mm. to just go and prove them. Every part of you wants to point out and say, you know, 
all the teachers love me, the older people love me. And then, you know, you don't need to do that. Like there's people that just love you for mm-hmm. you and not just, but also like even inviting Jesus to that moment, it, it's a powerful moment to mm-hmm. kind of say like Jesus was present during that. And, and Jesus mm-hmm. is even ready to have that deeper conversation with you. I don't know. I, I'm just trying to kind of play back because I think of a lot of our listeners, that's a super tangible way to maybe have a different yeah. look into their past. I appreciate you taking um, the, the, the conversation in that direction. Um, I think there's a couple of things that, yeah, I would say in response. I actually started to get very emotional when you were sharing that way of, of welcoming that part of your story um, into into the present in the presence of Jesus. Um, the Stuart smiley thing is so funny because it gets at a misconception about what children really want. Um, you know, it's this idea that we think like people just want to be told, Oh, you everyone loves you and you're great. And there's nothing wrong with you. Don't worry about it. Right. When what every young person and every human being really wants is someone who can actually see that they're not perfect and they're not great and go, I still want to be here with you anyways. Mm-hmm. I, I still, I still love you anyway. Right. And so like when that, when that pain comes up, when that, when that unworthy little kid comes up inside of us, it's not about going, Oh, you know, that, that wasn't true. You know, it's yeah. Like, dude, that really stunk that day. That was really painful. They said some terrible things about you that stuck with you forever. And I'm not even going to try to argue with them. I'm just going to say, I'm here with you. Like this is, this is hard and I can be in this pain with you. Right. And I think that's what Jesus does. I don't think Jesus uh, whitewashes our pain, wants to eliminate it, get rid of it, fix it. I think he's like Emmanuel. I want to be with you in your pain. That's what I'm here for. And, and that's really fundamentally what we want more than anything. Um, I, I in, in lovable, I talk about it, that when my shame bubbles up within me, I've learned that this is an opportunity to listen for the voice of the Holy spirit within me, being with me, saying something new, something different, usually something unexpected in lovable. I call it the voice of grace. Um, it was probably, I just want to give this as a, share this story as an example of, of how I think this actually looks. It's not a, not a Saturday Night Live, but um, I was probably about three or four months after the publishing of Lovable, I was invited on a podcast with a really, you know, huge audience and my publisher was super excited and this was going to be a chance to spread the word about Lovable. And, and I, I prayed a lot that day and I, I felt like I was in a really good place going into the, the interview but people who know me, what they know is that if I could like encapsulate my shame in a, in a phrase, it would be, you're not interesting enough. We're all going to get bored and leave you and you're going to be all alone. Um, so that's my shame, but okay. I, I do a lot of public speaking. It's a particularly vulnerable form of shame to have for a public speaker, but okay. I've got, I'm centered in, in Christ going into this interview. I get onto the pre-interview call and the host. The first thing he says to me is Kelly, you've got to be really interesting you got to come with all your punchiest stuff. They have to come a dozen takeaway. And I could just feel my shame. Like I'm not interesting enough for your audience. What am I going to do? And what I did was I did what I do. And I 
feel unsafe and they need to protect, I went into like professional Dr. Kelly mode who knows it all. And I probably acted sort of arrogant and know it all. And I hung up the phone and I thought I, I blew it. I blew that, that interview. Um, and, and I was feeling an incredible amount of shame about not being interesting enough and messing up the interview. Deep breath, listen for the Holy Spirit saying something new and different about this. Um, listen for the voice of grace. It took me 72 hours. 72 hours later, I'm said, I was out for a morning bike ride. I'm sitting on a dock at a local park along a river. I'm praying. I'm listening for the voice of grace. And I heard, I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. And... <laughs> You know, what you're sort of hoping for, you're hoping for the Stuart, is it Stuart Smalley? Smalley? Stuart Smalley. What you're, ho- you're hoping for the, oh, Kelly, they didn't notice, you know, they'd never heard you before. Yeah, it was a B plus performance, but they probably thought it was an A. You know, you're hoping for that kind of reassurance. And instead, I hear this voice inside of me say, you blew it, Kelly. Yeah, you did. It's hard to learn on a big stage, though. I'm proud of you for getting up there. Keep getting up on that stage. Right. Like, yeah, you didn't do well and that's okay. I'm here with you. I'm really proud of you for trying. I want to encourage you to keep trying. Right. And all of a sudden I felt this peace inside of me. Right. Because, because I've been honored, not for what I've done, but for who I am. Right. And, and I think, I think that's what we can trust that when Jesus is involved, when Jesus is speaking, Jesus say, I want to be with you and I don't care how it went. Right going to be all right. I know who you are. I want you to keep being you. Let's keep doing this together. Right. Mm. And, uh, and so that's, that applies whether it's something that we feel like we've really botched in our present or whether it's something from our past that keeps, keeps revisiting. This is so good. I'm just soaking it all in. I feel like I've been quiet over here, but it's just, this is so good. Thank you so much for everything you're sharing with us today. And thank you, Peter, for being vulnerable I'm just, it's like I'm watching a therapy mm. session kind of play out right in front of me. It's kind of fun here. <laughs> you know, um, you well, know, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. I, I was just going to say, I mean, good counseling is just good conversation. So, I, and it's, and it's good counseling for everybody involved. So this is helpful to me too. Thank you. Well, it's helpful to me and it's not the first time we've had a therapy session for, you know, couple hundred or thousand people to listen to so um you know <laughs> okay, and, good. and i i think you know what i really appreciate about lissa's value in this is you know i didn't realize going into this conversation and kind of my research of you and the book you know how much of it is just kind of seasonal and i think it's important Alyssa, how you brought up you know there's some mm-hmm. of our listeners that are in their 20s and like what are you talking about mm-hmm. and you know it, yeah. you know yeah. the the picture that i have in my mind too is you know, the there's a myth or a legend, I don't know if it's historic, but like Alexander the Great conquers like the whole known world and then cries. Mm. Like he's like, there's nothing left. Mm. And I just kind of wonder, right. I wonder in our lives, you know, if dealing with the past, mm. you run so hard. And I know that some of our listeners are like, I'd love to have the problem of success, but you know, how damaging it is to actually be successful Mm -hmm. and realize it's not working for you. And I think a huge piece of that Mm -hmm. is I didn't really deal with my past. Mm. Mm. That's right. Yeah. One of the, I think the lines at the end of um, the, the unhiding of Elijah Campbell is that dreams are great, 
having dreams and chasing dream, dreams, it's great. But we have to be aware that at the origin of every dream is a wound, right? There was something that sent us on that chase saying, I've got to become that. I've got to do that. I've got to accomplish that. And at some point, the thing we will either, we will either end up destroying <laughs> things in the, in that sort of perpetual chase, or we will sort of turn around and face the, the wound that we've been sort of running from, um, mm. in one form or another. And, um, and so yeah, it reminds me of, um, Peter Rollins, he's sort of a, um, writer, theologian, and he says, uh, I, I think I know why the, uh, the road runner, uh, why the, the coyote never catches the road runner. Um, because he says it, it can't be that all of his traps are really malfunctioning every day in those old cartoons. He must be sabotaging his own traps because te- deep down he knows the truth that what's he going to do the day after he catches the road runner. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's like what you said, like, you know, conquered the world and then cried the next day. Um, when the thing that you've told that your ego has told you will, will solve all the inner problems, will provide all the happiness and satisfaction when you get that thing and it doesn't do it, that's a big day in our lives. It's a, it's a big day to start to self-reflect on, on what's coming next. We're going to keep double down and keep doing the same things, or are we going to start to open up to our story? Mm. Wow. Um, this is a really, really deep podcast. I, I almost want to just like take a breath. Um, so we, uh, in our way of taking a breath is, uh, we asked this question, what does Jesus have to say about why I can't let go of my past? And the good news is Alyssa and I are going to answer that question. And like a good therapist, you can clean up whatever mess the church staff left. for Does that sound good? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's hilarious sure that sounds great <laughs> some of our listeners were laughing more than you were so anyways but we'll uh yeah uh, dr <laughs> kelly flanagan.com no we'll, we'll talk about that later Alyssa, uh do you want to go right. first or do you or you me? go first just go with it just go with it mm-hmm. um you know so what one of the things i said and i, I kind of want to wrap this up because for some of our listeners is you know that you know, does the Bible kind of deal with our past or how does it kind of handle this? And I think what Jesus would say about it is, you know, I just point to the story of Joseph because there's forgiveness. Um, you know, scholars even kind of comment whether he contributed to some of those problems. But, you know, Genesis fifty twenty, he lands at this verse and he says to his brothers who'd hurt him, who think that he's going to turn on him. He said, what, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. Mm. And I think what we want to do, and I think what, the way Jesus is, work, we want to jump to Genesis fifty twenty. but I hope what you're getting from this episode mm. is, like, there's actually, you have to emotionally and spiritually process to get there, and that's where the grace of God comes in. And we don't just jump to that verse because some people have been hurt by that. But I look Mm -hmm. at the story of Joseph. You can look at the story of Moses. You can look at the story of Ruth. You can look at all of these different stories and they reflect upon the past of God was present. There were contributions of imperfection, even sin, but they were able to kind of land at this place. What, What was intended for harm, God intended for good. So I just want to encourage you that mm. following Jesus wherever you are, it leads you on this journey in more ways than you think. So that's really good. Mm. Oh, 
You're going to have to clean mine up mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I think... I've got nothing to clean up so far. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That was, that was really good. Okay. I think what, what Jesus would say about why can't I let go of my past? I think, I think he would say that we don't have to let go of our past. I think that he would say that mm-hmm. your past is, is okay. The way it is, you don't, it doesn't define who you are. I mean, we can even see the people that Jesus hung out with. I mean, look at their pasts. I mean, Zacchaeus, I mean, the woman at the well, I mean, the people that Jesus ate with everyone that Jesus was hanging around with had a past and we don't see him bringing that up too often. Um, We just see him being Mm. there with those people in that present moment, despite where they had been, Mm. where they were going um, not that their past didn't matter because they did, mm-hmm. um, but he didn't let that define his relationship with them. And I think in that same way, mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't let our past define his relationship with us today. And I think that's something that we need to remember mm-hmm. is that our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God, it's not defined by our past. It's not defined by what happened to us, what we've done. Mm-hmm. It's defined by who he is and that's all that really matters. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's really good. You guys are amazing. What a gift to be on this podcast today. Um, so the, the answer that's sort of emerging in me is, is I'm listening to the two of you is um, the first thought is I think we can sort of take the word past and set it aside because no one's having deep questions about whether or not they need to put their past behind them when they're talking about fun, pleasurable, happy, joyful things, right? We have no conflict with that part of our past. The part of our past that we struggle with is pain. So what we're really talking about is why does there have to be pain? Mm -hmm. Uh, Why does pain have to be part of my story? What do I do with it once it is part of my story? Um, And and I was thinking about, (laughs) I want to tell you about a story about a savior who was resurrected on Sunday right? But on Friday, the way he passed away was he laid down and he had a quiet heart attack in his sleep and never felt a thing. Um, I'm not as compelled by his resurrection <laughs> um, as I am by the man who, who, who kneeled in the garden and begged his father on multiple occasions to not make him go through the pain any other way but this i don't want can we get to resurrection in some way other than the pain and the answer was but your way not mine mm-hmm. um and and so i don't think um i don't think in that we're finding out anything about god wants us to go through pain or god makes us go through pain i think we're finding out that the pattern of death and resurrection is the pattern of facing our pain being willing to go through it and experiencing it and discovering the way that it transforms us in the process and our willingness to face it. And, and so without the willingness to face that pain, we really don't get to resurrection. We do not get mm-hmm. to transformation. We do not get to Christ likeness. And, um, and so I, I don't know, I don't, I, I can't, I'm not going to begin to pretend I understand the way the cosmos were made, but I think, I think Jesus is teaching something in his, in his life and in that experience about the way the transformation works. Mm. Wow. Um, Kelly, thank you so much. And uh, so just to let all of our listeners know, um, two weeks after the, or uh, for the two weeks after this podcast comes out, you can go to IVPPress.com, use the code YGOD, uh, you get a 30% discount. 
um, from there. But Kelly, if people want to follow you, where's the best place to do that? My website's drkellyflanagan.com. It's drkellyflanagan.com. And, uh, and if you go there, you'll see a little button that says, uh, get the free lovable mini course. And, uh, and that'll get you signed up for my newsletters. And, um, and those come out about once a month updates about what's going on around, around, uh, my life. And then, um, and then unhidingbook.com will take you to a page where you can find out more about the unhiding of Elijah Campbell and you can pick it up anywhere with you know, books are sold in paperback and digital and audio. So, um, but if you want to find out more unhidingbook.com is the place to go. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us. If you want to find us, go to whygodwhypodcast.com, click the subscribe button and, uh, you will get this, uh, this episode and many others. So thank you so much for joining us today. 